Today's guest is Jason Reed, and this episode covers arguably the most important conversation we all need to be having. Jason is the founder of ChooseLife.org, whose mission is to end teen suicide by 2030. This movement was birthed after Jason's 14-year-old son tragically died by suicide in March of 2018, flipping Jason's world on his head. Now, Jason is determined to reach every parent and family about the most important conversation we need to be having. Jason has given two TEDx talks and spoken to various schools and organizations on the topics of teen suicide prevention and mental health. He produced a full-length documentary called Tell My Story, which documents Jason's journey as a father to understand the suicide crisis and voices the radical shift that needs to happen about our culture's stance on mental health and teen suicide prevention. Jason is also a highly successful entrepreneur, a renowned coach and consultant on leadership, and an author of multiple business books and children's books. The companies that Jason has started employ thousands of people, and we dive into how Jason has stepped up to lead his companies through the radical shifts happening from coronavirus. This interview is packed with valuable lessons, important insights, and emotional stories that I know are going to really resonate with a lot of people. So without further ado, here is today's episode with Jason Reed. I'm excited for this because... I had the opportunity to work with you, was it about a year ago, a little over a year ago, um, with the Idea Collective and getting to play a small part in the movement of ChooseLife.org, which I'm really excited to dive into and the mission to end teen suicide by 2030. Um, but before getting into that, I was really curious about you uh, as an entrepreneur, you've built multiple businesses and like curious where that drive comes from. Like, were you, did you have that entrepreneurial bug as a kid? For me, first of all, Jake, thanks for having me on today. I'm, I was looking forward to doing this with you. I, I really enjoyed the time we spent together um, working on the, on promoting my first Ted talk and uh, you were, you were fantastic during all that. So I was looking forward to chatting today. Um, for me, I think uh, it, it all started when I was 16 years old, or maybe uh, 16 and a half, something like that, and I was skipping school because I always skip school. <laughs> and I came home uh, in the middle of the day, and my father was there. And I'm like, looking at him, like, what? I said, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> he's like, "He's like, what are you doing here?" I said, "I'm skipping school. Why are you here?" He goes, "I got fired." And I think of that day, I and I'd always looked up at my father. I still do. But I was like going, here you are running this business. You're head of sales for a pharmaceutical company, executive, the parking spot, the whole bit, right? Because that's what they used to do back then. And someone else had control of your life, and you, can, and you got fired. And I, excuse me, I think at that point, we had that little print. At that part, at that point, I said, I don't want to have that happen to me. I don't mind it if I... Um, if I screw up on my own, I didn't want to have someone else be able to say, you're going to have to leave. Mm -hmm. and Interesting. I, I, that was really how I, and then the other thing was, I always hated the idea that there might be a door that's shut that I can't just open up and walk in, in a meeting that I may not be welcome to because it's above my pay grade. So I decided to make it so every meeting, meeting I can walk into because it's my company. And those are silly little things, but that was the drive for me to build my companies and fail at a whole bunch along the way. Gotcha. Yeah, that's so interesting. And so prior to that point, um, had you, like, you're a very driven person. I know you've done Ironmans, Black Belt, um, started multiple different businesses. Before that age, were you, did you already have that sense of drive or did that kind of come later on when you were like, I want to I want to have I, control I, of my life? I always wanted to try. I always had like, you know, the little businesses I was trying to start and do, you know, I, I remember I was making little lead soldiers. You'd melt the lead, put them in the molds. I paint them. And I took them to this flea market where I would sell them to a woman who in turn, I realized later was selling them as antiques. Um, <laughs> no, right. I made them like the week before. <laughs> and my dad used to drive me there and I sell them to her. And I, I didn't even realize what she was doing with them uh, until I put it together later. Uh, but driven, no, I, I don't think I was ever really driven until I hit college and I started working and running a bar. And I mean, I, I was the guy when I was 16, I had a job, but if you asked me to work overtime, I'd say, no, I'm going to go golfing <laughs> yeah. instead. 
but then I, I suddenly got into working when I was probably 18, 19 in the student painting business, the business I still own today, uh, college kids painting houses. And man, I just, I just really went for it and enjoyed it and, and never, never looked back. You know, what's so crazy is I was at Ohio state university just for a semester and I remember in my economics, no, it was my economics or Cal class. This kid comes in and talks about how he made 50 grand that summer painting houses. And I'm almost positive it was part of college works. And I remember thinking like, I, I was like, holy shit, you can make $50,000 in a summer. It was absurd. Um, and so it was funny when, when we met the, the light bulb went on in my head. I was like, wow, that is, that's kind of crazy to think that you, were one of the founders of that company and that company has i mean i mean prior to coronavirus i'm curious and we'll get into that too but you had about two thousand people working in that company is that correct the season yeah it's uh it used to be a little larger it's a little smaller now i think it's uh kids these days aren't as excited to go knock on doors to paint houses but it's still it's still a good viable business and more than a business it's a passion for us i mean we have other businesses uh, this is that's our very first big one we ever owned. And it, it does a lot of great things for college kids, teaching them how to become entrepreneurs. And, and I've got, you know, there's thousands of kids who went through that program over the last 30 years. And, and they've done some pretty amazing things and run some pretty amazing companies. So I'm, I'm very proud of the entrepreneurs that my partners and I have helped create. Yeah. And in building that in your various other businesses, like what is your, what is your favorite part about entrepreneurship? For me, it's the people. Um, if you take a look at my signature line on my email, it doesn't say CEO or chairman or any of those things. It says builder of people. Um, I, I, I'm not passionately excited about painting houses. I'm not passionately excited about construction or anything else that I do from a core thing. Um, I'm excited with the people that I work with. I'm excited with the team that we have. Um, I'm excited every day that when I, my goal is when I'm talking to someone on my team or people that I coach because I coach CEOs is I want to leave them in a better spot than we had when we started that conversation. I want to make sure that I'm, I am working towards making, helping to build them. And if I build my people and I create a great team of people, um, everything else just works. Yeah, I love that. And I noticed, I think it was on your LinkedIn, you said uh, relationships are everything. And I think it's cool. I think especially to me, um, because growing up, like, and especially in college, I've always been really focused on like trying to create a career that I'm passionate about. And I think sometimes it's, it's a great reminder that, and I, it's similar to you is like, I love the relationship part of business. Like at the idea collective, even I didn't even love my role in the back end of what I was doing. It, it wasn't exactly like aligned with, what I love, but the thing that I loved about the business is, was the relationships and getting to work with people. Um, and so on that front also, um, with your, with your role in CEO coaching international, um, what would you say is the biggest thing you've learned coaching some of these entrepreneurs and, and business leaders? Basically that's, that's interesting. I've, um, I've learned so much, right? Because I coach CEOs around the world doing a whole bunch of different things in different businesses from contractors to people who are building amazing glass sculptures that hang in the Dubai mall and castles, castles all over the world um, to, you know, tech startups in, in Silicon Valley. And um, I think I've just learned, and not so much learned, but just keeps coming back that, the harder you work, the more you win. That even, you know, people get down, they have frustrating times, business goes up and down, but those that have maintained a really positive attitude and work hard and dig in always end up back on top. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how bad things seem to be getting. They always end up back on top. Mm -hmm. And in terms of like the print, like that sounds like a, just a core principle in, in like life and business and with just the current landscape of the world in terms of a, how so much of the world has moved online and then yeah. B with the coronavirus pandemic going on, what would you say in like the things you've learned in your career, 
what translates over to this time and what do you see the biggest shifts that are happening that people need to like, especially entrepreneurs and, and people really of any profession, like need to grasp in order to thrive in this changing world? That's a great question, especially with what we're going through right now. Um, here's what I've seen. And again, we had to shift our five companies immediately. I mean, we are a door knocking business to get leads for CollegeWorks. Empire uh, goes and calls on property managers and in, in offices. Those things don't exist. Those modes of marketing don't exist anymore. Yeah, virtually overnight, they've had to shift. They had to, so I've seen competitors. I've seen other companies that have just become paralyzed. They, they aren't doing anything. We took a different path. Um, we decided to train our folks, retrain our folks how to do things virtually to jump onto Zoom. Uh, the day after we shut down, it was March 12th, I bought zoomforsuccess.com and because it was available. And then we rebranded it for Empire, one of our companies, and said, here's how business is now going to be done. And we, and we created the narrative in our industry that all the board meetings, all the decision processes will now be moved to Zoom. When most of the industry was sitting back going, I don't know what to do and we can't, we have to meet face-to-face and we just went out there and said, no, you don't. Here's how you do it. You get, everything gets now done on Zoom. And, and the industry got on with it, and our, our decisions started happening. And all of a sudden, my, my people were, instead of meeting you face-to-face, were going ahead and saying, okay, let's go have a Zoom breakfast or a Zoom lunch or a Zoom dinner, a Zoom cocktail hour. We have Zoom bingo parties. We have Zoom, the same stuff that everybody is now doing. Um, we were doing it really, really early. Um, our college works business is still out there selling. We can't go door-to-door anymore. We are virtually doing an estimate with you over the phone and over Zoom, and they're doing great. But, and I'm not saying we've got it all figured out, but mm-hmm. we didn't give up. And what I see right now is that people who have decided that their hands in the air, they can't do anything, right? Now, there's extreme examples of this. You've got restaurants that are just closed and they don't do anything. And then you've got other restaurants that are going, we're going to have take out and we're going to market the heck out of it and we're going to be all over Facebook and say come visit us and come visit us and come visit us and somehow they're thriving now are they doing as well as they were before probably not but they're still in business you're going to find that this this pandemic is going to shake out a lot of different companies because some people didn't do anything and aren't trying to do anything they're not they're not realizing that things have changed. They have to change as well. People are saying, Hey, it's only going to be three weeks and I'll just be back to work. and will be fine. Well, this is a great example of, there's a, a wonderful book that I'm sure you've heard who moved my cheese. You ever heard of that one? I've actually never heard of that book. Who's it oh, by? It's uh, I can't remember who it's by because it's just, it's just who moved my cheese in the book. Okay, uh, but if you, it's a memorable if, name. If you go onto YouTube and, look, and Google who moved my cheese, go to YouTube and you'll find a short video about the book. Essentially, the, the book is this. There's these two, these two mice who go visit their cheese in a maze, right? The cheese is there every day. And this happens for whatever, days, months, years. They just show up and the cheese is always there. One day they show up and the cheese is gone. The cheese has disappeared. One mouse decides that I don't think the cheese is coming back. And he goes on a search around the maze to find some more, some more cheese. The other mouse says, no, my cheese is going to come back. I'm just going to sit here and wait for the cheese. Well, you can imagine how that story ends. Yeah. And that's essentially the entire book. But you should still read the book and watch the movie or the, the YouTube because it's great. But this is a great example of who moved my cheese. Our cheese has moved. This world is not going to be the same ever or for at least a very long time. If you're sitting on your couch thinking you're going to go back to work in three weeks and everything's going to be fine or a week or a day, um, I don't know what to tell you. This thing needs a cure. We don't have it yet. And you're going to be wearing a mask. You're going to be distancing. Um, Unless you're in a state that believes that this isn't real. Luckily, we live in California. They do believe it's real. But I also believe we can all get back to work. We do it safely. It'll just be different. Yeah. Yeah, I love that analogy of, of who moved my cheese. And I think you're, the business you're in is like a prime example because I would have thought 
you know, out of all the businesses knocking on doors, like that's gotta be something of course that's like immediately affected. What was your, when you start, what, when did you get the hunch that, okay, things are changing and fast and we have to pivot now. And then what, what is your, what was your process as a leader? Like, you know, what were like, you have the realization, then you communicate with your team. I'm just fascinated by this because it's one thing to just hear this um, and say, oh yeah, like Jason had to make a decision and, and innovate quick. But I think it's another, like, what's the inner dialogue? Are you kind of, do you have that moment of like, kind of like fear hit your gut where you're like, oh my gosh, things are changing rapidly. What are we going to do? Because I think, I, I guess putting myself in your shoes with, with the responsibility you have, I think part of me might could, could almost feel like overwhelmed or like, how are we going to shift out of this? Like still in that active mode of thinking how to shift, but what was your process for moving forward with, with confidence and, and doing something about it? So first of all, I was scared mm -hmm. when I, when it first happened, like, Oh my gosh, my business is done. All these great people I have, I won't be able to employ. Um, what's going to happen to them way down there somewhere was what's going to happen to me too, but I wasn't necessarily all that concerned about that. Um, what's going to happen to the world. And, and you do have a bit, there's, you know, people get afraid, they fear and sadness. Now I happen to be a guy who believes that whether you like this or not, that the emotions of sadness and the emotions of fear are kind of wasted emotions. There's, they're not going to do anything for you. Unless the fear or sadness drives you to something, they're not doing anything. They're not accomplishing anything. I was a Boy Scout, so I lived by the, the model, be prepared. So I, I immediately shifted into, we have to, in my partners and I, not just me, shifted mm -hmm. into, what are we going to do about this? And I went from being very, um, I wasn't all that involved in the day-to-day -day of my business to being very involved in the day-to-day -day of my business. I was on, you know, started Zoom calls with the sales team, Zoom calls with my partners every day, Zoom calls with the office, Zoom calls with my superintendents, Zoom calls, just constantly being in front of people. Not these, I had to go, I'm going to tell you what to do, but going to my sales team, for example, hey, here's the new world we're living in. What are we going to do differently? You guys have to figure this out. How are we still have to sell? I'm still going to hold you accountable to the same amount of sales, whether you can go see people or not. So how are you going to do it? Mm -hmm. And they came back with all the answers. And then the people who were maybe a little, nah, I'm not sure. I think the world's going to fall apart. Started watching everybody who was going, oh, this is going to be fine. And they all eventually got on the same page and we continued and they've done great. Yeah. That's a brilliant example of leadership because I think in these times we're looking for someone to model of how they're acting and reacting to what's going on. So by setting that bar, because if, if, if you had done panic or, or the example of, you know, not, not going after the cheese, for example, then that would have sent the message to everyone else. And I think this is actually the perfect segue into everything you're doing um, with choose life and the mission to end teen suicide by 2030, because as someone myself, who'd been in the mental health space and speaking at schools, you know, like you looking at the, the mental health landscape, with especially depression, anxiety, suicide rates among youth, there is this kind of, it's been like a big topic of let's raise awareness, right? And here's someone with your background coming in and saying, okay, awareness, that's a great step one, but that is sure as hell not enough to fix this pandemic. And can you, can you share with everyone first the story of, of what got you on this path? Um, so two years ago, March, my 14 year old son killed himself. Sorry. No, it's okay. Tim and I, my wife were on vacation. He'd planned it. We didn't know. We didn't know he had any issues. He hid it all from us. And he did it while we were gone. So I couldn't stop him.
funny, no matter how much time goes by and how much I do talk about this, I it's still hard. So after I was home and we were starting to go on with our lives, I was going through the, the, the drawers of his room, you know, his clothing drawers, and, and the top left-hand drawer was a, a sticky note that had two things on it. There's two, two sticky notes. One said, here's my usernames and passwords, and the other one said, tell my story. And I immediately took that and still believe that to this day that he wanted me to tell his story. Not his story, but the story of kids like him. And so I did a movie called Tell My Story. So since that time, we started the movie a year ago, March, with the idea it was come out this March, and it was ready. So let me back up. So I formed ChooseLife.org, uh, which is our charity. And as you say, our goal is to end teen suicide because we believe that everybody's already aware about it. Right? It's the number two killer of our kids. Um, and everyone's already aware. We need to make steps to stop it. Right? No one's saying, let's go be aware about the coronavirus. They're saying, how are we going to stop coronavirus? Right? Mm-hmm. So being aware of teen suicide is not solving the problem. Um, and I know there's a lot of great people in the mental health space, and they're doing a wonderful job. I just believe we all need to shift to how do we end it. That's mm-hmm. all. And so anyways, we back up. So I started the organization. We did the movie with Cinema Libre. I did a TEDx talk that you helped me spread back uh, two years ago. I did another one. I did a Thrive talk with you guys down in San Diego. I did another TEDx talk um, last October. I did a goal cast that came out in March. That's been about 7 million views on Facebook and I think another half million views. I've just told half million views on YouTube I didn't even know about. So that's kind of cool. So we're getting, we're getting that out there. Mm-hmm. And we'll link to all that in the episode show notes and yeah, listening. Great. Right. So, and I've done a lot of speaking, but the big thing was the movie. And now the movie was planned to come, was coming out in March. And with coronavirus, we have put that on hold as we try to figure out what our next strategy is. Um, Cinema Libre, who's my partner in, in the film, they want to do a, a theatrical release, which I agree. We were going to be in theaters. And now it's just a matter of when is that going to happen? Mm-hmm. When are we going to be back at theaters? So um, trying to figure that out right now. But what we are going to do is um, we're also in the process of filming a shorter version of the movie that we hope to put into schools when we get back to schools in the fall. So you'll be able to, so schools will be able to say, okay, I want to do a PTA parent teacher event where I'm going to bring people in parents in to see this hour long here's how you talk to your kids and here's why it's important um more prescriptive more here's what you do as opposed to the theatrical movie and that'll be available for schools in the fall mm-hmm. and because for me when i say how do we end teen suicide the there's a bunch of different steps and a bunch of different things but the number one thing is parents because when you think about this i'm 53 years of age this didn't exist the same way when I was a kid, right? And mm-hmm. if you go to my, my TED, TEDx talk on ChooseLife.org called uh, The Hot Lava Game, I talk about how my life growing up, I didn't know about all this stuff. I didn't, I mean, you think about kids today, right? They're, the anxiety levels that kids have right now today, all right? We're all dealing with our jobs, our careers, what's going to happen, we're watching the news. Your kids are scared to death. Not all of them, some of them, mm-hmm. right? The ones that had anxiety, the ones that had depression issues are now at home with worse anxiety and depression issues. And in some cases, we're not paying attention to them because mm-hmm. we're busy and we're scared ourselves. But this is a time right now where you need to pay even more attention to your kids, right? And, and Jason, what would you say to someone, and this has been on my mind a lot recently, um, I have a really close family member who was on benzodiazepines for years, which really affected his mental health. Uh, I went through my own mental health journey, which of course is still on mental health continues. But I think what I'm trying to get at here is because mental health is not, um, you can't see it, you know, it's not like a broken arm. 
until you've either experienced something yourself or someone close to you. And as I'm learning, like the family member, I said, it's, it really has like affected it where it's not just, Oh, like I'm anxious because of whatever reason, like there are also like chemical imbalances and there's, there's a whole variety of issues, but what do you, how can you get through to someone who's a never had this themselves or B doesn't, hasn't had someone affected because I know I can almost like empathize with myself you know, when I was younger, I mean, I've always been empathetic, but for someone who doesn't have that ability to empathize or understand, like, how can you get through to that person to say how severe it is when someone is going through this? So I would have been that person two and a half years ago Mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't suffer from depression. I don't, I just don't. So I don't understand it as, you know, being the guy I am, I just, I just, it's just not something I would have understood. So I didn't recognize what Ryan was going through and he didn't openly share it with me. Probably because the way I show up is in some ways a little larger than life. And I do all the stuff and blah, 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 blah. And no one ever, you know, kids never saw me cry. I was always in a good mood. You know, I, I tell people I've, I've been almost bankrupt three times, but my kids would never know. Mm-hmm. I failed at 13 companies. My kids never knew. All they thought is that give me a problem. I'm going to solve it. So that's how Ryan would show up to me. Right. Mm-hmm. So I would never recognize. And, and so if, if someone, I probably was guilty of people saying, well, that person is depressed. And I'd be like, what the hell just snap out of it. Mm-hmm. Right. What's, what's your problem? Like the, life is great. I mean, a big mistake that, that we all know some of us make, I made it apparent my, one of my kids would come to me and say, well, I'm sad or I don't feel, I'd be like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, look around where you live. You know how many people are starving in different parts of the world and they don't get to eat that food and you're complaining about eating it or they don't get to go outside and do the things you do or vacation the way you vacation. I would be that guy. I was probably that guy. In fact, I mm-hmm. was that guy. What I didn't understand is that um, to someone who's really seriously depressed, they can look at, I can be looking at sunny skies like we have today in Southern California and they are going to see only clouds. They're not going to see that. They can't, they mentally can't see it. We're looking at the same sky and they don't see it the same way. It's not their fault. They're not trying to be depressed. They're not trying to be this way. There's an imbalance in their, in their brain chemistry that's causing them to be this way. And I'm not saying they need to be on drugs. I'm saying there's a whole bunch of different ways to fix this. But understanding that just because you see something one way doesn't mean they see it the same way. Mm-hmm. Something that, that I don't I don't get anxious, right? But because I don't get anxious doesn't mean that something as simple as going outside the house may cause someone else to be anxious, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I can go, how, how can you possibly get anxious before you're going to go outside the house? But they do. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I, and you can't understand it. You're not going to understand it. You have to accept it. Mm-hmm. But that is, they're not telling you this to be a pain. They're not telling you this to make it up. It's how they feel. And you can't change the way people feel. You can try to help them. You can try to understand them. I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. I, I think I get it now. Yeah. Late. And I, I think that's why it's so important. I mean, I'm, I'm really passionate about the medium of storytelling because I think facts don't do enough. It has to be delivered in a way. And I think that's why both of your TED Talks and I'm sure the film, I mean, I've just seen the trailer, but can speak to the, the demographic of people who aren't being affected by mental health or don't understand other people's journey because you're like the perfect example of that person who didn't have issues with that. But now you're, te- you're saying, look, like, listen to me and understand that just because you're not going to, like, this is a whole reality And I think for me, it it really took, so because I'm dealing with, or my body's been going through Lyme disease and especially in the first few months, I was having swings and anxiety and, and experiencing like about, like, I've also never struggled with depression either, but it was, I knew like something was off with my health. And I was like, this is not circumstantial. Like my body is flying up and down and it was kind of scary. And it gave me a new sense of empathy for this family member. Cause I was like, I almost felt bad at how I wasn't as compassionate for him because I couldn't even understand 
what all these meds had done to his, you know, GABA receptor. So he, the part of his brain that literally would calm you down was not there. And it took almost me going through this period to really understand. But I think that's why these stories and talks are so important because they're, they're piercing people where facts just don't emotionally hit people. Um, and another question I had for you, like in, in t- about two years, you've done an insane amount of research into this, this field. Uh, of mental health and, and suicide. And of all the people you've talked to and interviewed and the research you've done, what was the thing or maybe multiple things that surprised you most when you, when you kind of lifted up the rock? I think I'm, I'm surprised and amazed at some people that this is their entire life and they've dedicated all their time and, it, and it's a hard space to live in. Like, I don't live in this space full time. I have my businesses and I spend time here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it, but it's a tough space to live in. There's people that are absolutely amazing on the front lines of mental health on a daily basis. And this is where they've dedicated their life. And that I'm honored to know some of those people mm-hmm. and, and meet them and see the great work they're doing. So I think that, that amazes me. It amazed me to realize how prevalent it is in society. The amount of kids that are actually anxious and say they're anxious or say they've thought about um, the prospect of killing themselves. It's scary mm-hmm. to think that they, that, and I, and I, I, I don't have the stats off in my head. I'm terrible with stats, but I, um, it's a larger amount. You can Google it yourself. You can look up the stats, but it's, um, and it, and it, amazing to me that I never had the conversations with my kids about their mental health and how many of us don't. It's not a topic we talk about. We say, how you, how you feel, how you doing? Oh, your stomach hurts. Well, tell me about your stomach. Oh, you're sad. Oh, you'll be fine. <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's, it, it that, that to me, I just, it just boggles my mind how I live that way. Mm-hmm. And if, let's say it's a parent or even, uh, especially using the context of a parent, but I think this can go to anyone if it's a friend or a relative, and you ask how someone's doing and they're saying fine or they're not opening up, and you do get a sense, or maybe you don't get a sense, but something is telling you what's actually going on with this person. How, how, do, you, how do you have that conversation to make the person feel safe enough to actually open up what's wrong because I know as someone who's gone through my own challenges and and other people that I've talked to when you're not feeling good it's not you don't want to tell people about it you feel really like like I felt like ashamed what I was experiencing and yeah I think people do feel ashamed but I think there's that you just hit on something really important if you ask someone how they're doing they say they're fine there's nothing good about fine they didn't say they're great. They didn't say they're fantastic. They didn't say they're good. They said they're fine. We tell people we're fine. Our kids tell us we're fine when we're actually not doing good at all. It's, our, it's, it's people's way of saying, I'm not doing great. I'm not doing good. I just don't want to tell you. So I'm going to say I'm fine. I'm going to hope you ask me for more. Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing we need to understand and remember is that when someone says they're fine, That's an invitation to ask them how they're really feeling. I think we need to take it as an invitation. What we tend to do is say, oh, you're fine. Good, because I'm not. I'm going to go over here. (laughs) Especially in today's day. Especially today, right? People are dealing with all of their stuff, all of their their angst on their own, and they walk into the kids' room and say, how are you doing? I'm fine. Oh, good. I had to go back and figure out if I have a job or not. I had to jump on a Zoom call, right? The world's falling apart. I got to watch the news. But that fine is that trigger. It's that invitation to say, yeah, I got I to have a conversation. And then how do you do it? Well, I can tell you right now, the, it's the worst place to try and have a conversation with your kid is in their room. Um, that's their sanctuary. That's their space. They don't want you invading it. Interesting. And when you walk in, there's, I need to talk. You're fine. We need to talk. They're just going to be they're gonna <laughs> shut right down, right? You need to get them in a spot where you can chat. 
get them to go for a walk. I mean, and today's coronavirus days say, Hey, why don't we go kick, cook dinner together? Let's go play a card game together. And then say, tell me what fine means. Why'd you choose fine? Tell me what you're sad about. The thing that just the, the kind of light bulb that went off in my head was really, it comes down to active listening where it's not, it's not what the person is saying. It's what they're, what they're conveying through what they're not saying often, or maybe really like paying attention and giving care to this person to really understand and give them the time of day. Cause like you said, I think people are stressed out and they have a million things on their head. And it's a reminder that, Hey, there are people who are hurting and it's up to you, especially I think as a parent um, or with a loved one to really make sure you're paying attention to the verbal and nonverbal cues that they're communicating. And, and there's, and it's just, it's just important these days to, t- to pay attention to each other. There was an article I read today that it said one in four people are almost at their breaking point. Now, who knows what the article, I mean, they, they surveyed a bunch of people said one in four people right now are at their breaking point. And they said, if, if this continues on until the third week of June, for whatever reason, the three out of four people will, will snap. So take that with a grain of salt, right? Mm-hmm. But it does make sense. There's a lot of people at the breaking point. You've seen it. I've seen it, right? People are on the edge. They're stuck inside. They don't want to be inside. It's amazing. All these, all these people, they were perfectly happy being inside for years when you tell them they can't go outside are suddenly outside people. They've been inside people for years. They haven't left. They haven't seen this, the daylight in years, but now they're outside people when you tell them yeah. they can't go out. Right? <laughs> but it doesn't matter. They're anxious and they're upset and they're frustrated. And it's getting them to have that conversation. I wrote an article that came out in the LA Weekly yesterday, an op-ed about the 11 things that you can do while you're in quarantine to help your kids and help, help each other. And I made it 11 because I think every good list should go to 11 and not 10. Yeah, I read that. I, I liked it. And actually that was, that, that spurred a question I had. And, and when I would speak at schools, this was like the key thing that I talked about was I think social media. And I know that's one of the five pillars that, um, that is a part of your solution to ending teen suicide especially now because everyone is kind of stuck at home and everything is online. So people are spending even more time on social media. What is the number one? And I know you, you, you actually developed an app called kids safe mobile. Yeah, we've had, we have not actually released that app yet. We've had some technology issues with it, but there's a lot out there that'll stop block your kids from being on social media. I mean, I, I don't think that, let me put it to you this way, Jake, when, when I was interviewing kids for this movie for tell my story and ask them, you know, what do you think of Instagram? What do you think of Facebook? What do you think of, of all these different social media apps? The number one thing that kept coming back is they're really bad for my mental health. Now that doesn't mean they're bad for everybody, right? That just means that for certain people who are having a challenge in their mental health, they become really bad because they see everybody else's life as being better than theirs. They're getting bullied. Because, you know, when I was a kid, the bullies were the bigger guys that would beat me up every day because they were the bigger guys or those, those, those guys. Now you can be anybody be a bully because you're hiding behind a keyboard. And we all know that. Right. But that means there's more bullies. So in today's day with quarantine and being at home, I think it's so important as parents to check in on your kids, social media, because there's more bullying going on now than there was when they were in school because the bullies are at home with nothing to do and showing your kids how to deal with those bullies whether it be blocking them or whether it be responding in a way that gets them to stop. I mean, we have, I mean, I, and then the other thing about it is I don't want to go off on a rant, but cell phones for young kids, um, you know, this thing is not, I wish I didn't give Brian a cell phone when he was 12. I really wish I didn't because it wasn't, he wasn't on social media, but I didn't control it. Right. He, he had full access to his phone and the internet whenever he wanted. So he would be in his room watching YouTube videos on a cell phone and he researched how to kill himself on a cell phone. Um, social media is not the worst thing on the web. Porn is not the worst thing on the web. Neither one of them are good, 
but there's a lot of really bad, dark things on the web. And I let my son just read those in his room at night because I didn't know he was doing it. One thing that I think about all the time is like, I grew up where social media kind of came, came to play in middle school, kind of freshman, sophomore, like in high school, really. That's when it really started. But now, of course, kids like are, it's just part of the world that they grow up in. And so I, I got to at least live part of my life without it because I, and, and social media is not going away. It's becoming more prevalent. And especially in schools, like everyone else seems to be using it. There's no, like, do you think it's even possible to have some sort of, like for a parent or, or whoever, like in a school where they say like, you are not allowed to even have a social media account until you're like 12. Like, do you think that's even a possibility? I, you know, I'm not a big government guy. Yeah. But, you know, we, we say you can't drive till you're 16. You can't drink till you're 21. Can we not say you shouldn't have a, a Facebook and Instagram account until you're 14 or 16? I mean, we could. Are we going to? We don't probably have the political will to do that. Um, and I'm not saying that kids shouldn't have them ever. But if they're going to have them, we have a responsibility as a parent to make sure we're watching them. And, and making sure that they don't spend too much time on them and make sure they understand that what they see on social media isn't always true. I mean, it, it's, it, it's to this day, it's not true. And I'll give you an example. My own, my own self is I post those pictures of Kyle and I every night that you probably see on Facebook. Yeah. They're hilarious. We're, we're, we're on day 39 of, of quarantine where we post a picture of us doing something together. Right. And people come and go, you might, you're having such an amazing time with your son. Guys, my son is 18 years of age. I get the 10 minutes that where we figure out the funny picture and we take the funny picture and we have dinner together. We're not spending two hours together doing whatever activity it looks like we're doing because he's 18. <laughs> he's not going to do that with me. So <laughs> I get a kick out of people who call me, oh, you're having so much time with your son. I'm like, no, we take a picture together <laughs> because that's the real life. He's, I mean, he's going to spend so much time with me. Now, we do look forward to that picture, and we do look that picture. But we look at social media and assume everyone else's life is better than theirs, better than ours. It's not. It's just whatever you see in that one picture. The moment they all gather to smile together. Totally. It's tough because even though I recognize that and you're saying that, it's just the very nature of the apps. Like, no one typically, like most people, don't post when you're feeling sad, you're not thinking, let me post this on Facebook. It's more like you're having a fun moment or you're, you know, doing a fun project. You're like, let's document this. So it's very easy to just forget that people are just choosing a positive moment, but that doesn't portray their full reality. Well, well think, think about this, right? You think about a Thanksgiving dinner, Thanksgiving family time. There's a whole bunch of fights and terrible things that happen around Thanksgiving, right? Someone drinks too much. They shout at each other. They bring up things they shouldn't have said. And, but what do you see on Facebook? A beautiful picture of a family having dinner. You don't see all the stuff that really went on at Thanksgiving dinner. So every time you see someone's picture on, things, on Facebook, it's like you're not seeing the whole story around what just happened. You're seeing them smiling. And before I kind of shift into – like uh, to wrap up this interview, I wanted to make sure everyone can find you. Wh where's the best place, you know, for the TED Talks, everything you're doing with ChooseLife.org, the film? Like what's the best if, place? If you go to ChooseLife.org, it has everything on there. All the uh, TED Talks, the TEDx Talks, I should say. The Goalcast is up there. We just launched um, a mask initiative. If you remember... Rosie the Riveter from um, World War II was the rallying cry to get people to go work in the factories and support the war effort. So with masks being something that are necessary right now, we uh, launched rosiethesamstress.com, uh, which connects to Choose Life. And the idea here is we're putting together people who, who are making masks around the country with people who need masks. And they're homemade masks. And 15% of the, of the mask price, when you buy them through the site, goes to support ChooseLife.org. So um, you can, that's connected on, on ChooseLife.org. You can also see the trailer from the movie. There's a whole bunch of content there about how we intend on ending teen suicide. And you can reach out to me through the, through the site as well. Um, there's, we're just trying to do as much as we can. And we also recognize that during this time, it's hard to talk about mental health and teen suicide, even though we should be, because it's really prevalent. 
because there's so many people who are affected by coronavirus and that's sucking up all the bandwidth and it probably should. But please understand as you're, as you're reading all the news and talking about coronavirus and when are we going back to work? And I feel so bad for those that are out of work and so bad for those who have lost people who are sick. It's a terrible thing. But keep in mind that that child next to you in that other room might be having some really deep, dark, bad thoughts right now, or your spouse might be, and you need to be there for them. It's a powerful reminder, just having, like, like you said in the first TED Talk, to have the conversation. And that's the one thing I, I kind of taken away from everything you've done is have the conversation and be proactive about it. And I, and by the way, I enjoy watching you play ukulele with your sister on the, on Facebook. Yeah, we've been having some fun kind of trying to make light of all the seriousness. We, we make some fun coronavirus remixes on the uke. So yeah, it's great. But, but even that, Jake, are you telling me that all the time you and your sister have been home right now, you've never had a harsh word with each other? Oh, are you kidding me? We fight all the time. I mean, yeah. it's different now, but, but yeah, I think especially being home together, we can all drive each other. We do drive each other crazy. Right, but all I see is you guys playing ukulele and singing together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does look, kind of look like a happy kumbaya. <laughs> it's perfect for sure. It sure does. And that's yeah. fine. I hope it is. Yeah, and then one thing I, I, I wanted to, like, so I've been going through my own health challenges, and, uh, and, I, and I've shared a lot about this. And, and people look at me, and they're like, you look fine. Again, same thing. Like, and and I, I feel like, I'm very supported and I have some really great resources and, and close relationships of people who are helping, but I have my, like this health thing has been the most challenging experience I've ever been through. And I guess some, like people tell me this advice, right? They're like, you know, you're so young, you have so much time ahead of me. And I, and I get that and it does give me comfort, but it can be frustrating. And especially with my condition where it's like, I don't know, like people with Lyme and, or chronic Lyme, as they call it, it could be years, it could be decades. Like they're, they're very real people who have this 10, 15, 20, 30 years. But, and for me, like my life as I knew it, especially in the first few months, it was quite painful to let go of work. And, you know, I, I put my, my whole life revolved around work and just realizing I couldn't, but what would you tell almost like I'm asking, what would you tell me about someone else who's going through this experience where they're saying, okay, life has shifted. Like the cheese is gone. The proverbial cheese is gone and it's changed. And because you, you've lived more years than I have, like what would you tell someone who's just going through a funk or a weird time in their life where things have changed and it's not the way it was? Well, I haven't had Lyme disease, so I don't know exactly what you're going through, but I have had my life completely turned upside down. It'll never go back. I lost what was one of the most important things in my life. And I'll never get it back. My cheese moved. It left. So I had a choice to make. I, can, I could do what some people do which is feel sorry for myself, feel sorry for my family, and just kind of slide and wallow in it. I chose not to do that. I chose to say, I'm gonna go make a difference in the world. I'm gonna change this. I'm gonna be a positive influence on the world, in this space, with my family, with my friends. Because that's in my mind the right thing to do. So if I look and say for you, yeah, with with the time you're you're able to during the day, right? Do everything you can to be a positive influence in the world. Find a way to do something in those those hours where you're not exhausted, and I understand how it can be, to be productive and putting content out maybe about Lyme disease. And never give up the hope and the belief and the search for what's going to fix you, right? Because my understanding of, the, of that disease is the cure for you might be different from the cure from somebody else. Precisely. And you need to be, you can't ever give up hope. And you have to work diligently every day to uncover what that cure is going to be because the cure is there for you somewhere. 
Am I making sense? Totally. Yeah, that really hits home. And, and it's funny, you summed up exactly what I know to be true. And I think it's the frustrating, but also the hopeful part is every, it's so bio-individual. So, and I, and I know that in my truth, it's just every day, every afternoon, when I get like slammed with the, the train of t- t- tiredness, it's like, that is the reminder I need to keep telling myself. And it's what you do at that time before you're tired, right? I'm going to give you a simple example about right now. Um, there's people that are quarantined. We're all quarantined for whatever's been. There's people who are going to come out of this quarantine having written songs like you guys did, right? Having made amazing art, worked on a new language, built a business. That, I mean, just done some, learned, read all these different things. And people have done some amazing things been in really good shape and they worked out every day. And there's people going to come out of this thing doing nothing. Like they just emerged from being asleep for six weeks and watching Tiger King. <laughs> right. I don't, I've never watched it. Don't intend to watch it. Right. There's too many things. I have so many things I want to do. I haven't got to, I haven't wrote, written my songs yet because I haven't had time. I haven't worked on my screenplay, but I have had time. I'm busy from five in the morning till seven o'clock at night. Then I try to spend some time with my family. And they go to sleep at night. <laughs> so exhausted. But don't waste the good crisis. And for you, those waking hours that you have, make them count. If it's only three hours a day you can be productive, make them count. Yeah, that hits home. And, and it's, it's funny, like in the last few weeks when I started to get the podcast up and I'm doing some other creative projects, it's, it's genuinely made a world's difference and. And A, my energy, it, it's actually fueling me. And yeah, everything you're saying rings true to me. Like we can't always control these circumstances and these kind of dark incidences that may happen, but we can use that to bring something positive. And I think looking at you, especially in what you've done in the last two years, it's, it's actually quite remarkable to think a documentary film, two TED Talks, um, and you know, everything that you've experienced and gone through is now you're helping save countless lives moving forward. So just want to say thanks, Jason. Like, and I, it was truly a, a privilege and an honor for me to get to be play a very small part in the TED talk and just, and, and moving choose life forward, even if just a few inches, but just to see everything you're doing and the example you're setting. And if everyone is listening to this, please go watch his TED Talks. Type Jason Reed, TEDx. They'll both come up. They're powerful. They're moving. And it will help spread this ripple effect of having the conversations that we need to have to make sure we're all okay physically, mentally, emotionally. Well, Jake, you're an amazing guy. You were a huge help to me when we were working together. And I'd love to have you back doing stuff with me if you ever have time. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for listening, and I hope you guys enjoy that conversation with Jason Reed as much as I did. Just hearing everything he's been through and how he's chosen to respond, I find it very admirable. He has really an empowered mindset. So really, please make sure to check out what he's doing at chooselife.org. It is linked in the show notes along with everything else we talked about today. And again, thank you for listening. I hope you are staying healthy and safe wherever you are. And again, if this podcast resonated with you, it would mean so much to me if you could leave a review on iTunes. So thanks so much, and until next week, stay curious.